0: From member-supported CPR news, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Andrew Kenny,
1: And I'm Benta Berkland.
2: I'm not done fighting for the people of Colorado. I'm John Hickenlooper, candidate for the United States Senate. My name is Andrew Romanoff. I'm a candidate for the U.S. Senate. I will do everything I possibly can to prevent police brutality and to hold fully responsible those who perpetrate these crimes. We will give you
0: our vote, but we want to make sure that our communities, our people, and our problems are being
3: represented in, in the official that we elect. There's nothing he could do or say now that would honestly make me want to vote for him. I'm just so torn that I, my conscience doesn't want me to vote for either candidate.
1: The legislature's finished for the year, but we bring you this bonus episode because there's no rest in politics, nope. and election season is hitting top gear.
0: That's right. These two guys are running for U.S. Senate. Winner faces Republican Cory Gardner. Now, what really strikes me is these two guys have been around Colorado politics for decades now, the both of them, and they've held political office during a recession and recovery uh, through a period of time when Colorado really flipped from red to Purplish, it's the name of the show.
1: (laughs) And they're competing for one of the state's most powerful elected roles at a time of major upheaval. It's a presidential election year with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket and Democrats are hoping for a blue wave. The country is still grappling with a global pandemic and dealing with a tectonic shift on issues of policing and racial justice.
0: So if you've been skimming the news, you probably know this. Hickenlooper is a centrist kind of an establishment Democrat. He's got a name that everyone, at least in this state, probably knows. He was the mayor of Denver. He was a two-term governor. Uh, You might remember he was a presidential candidate for a hot minute. And now he's kind of the choice of national Democrats. I almost look at him like the Joe Biden of this race.
1: Yes, he was recruited by the National Party to enter what was a crowded field, Then we've got Andrew Romanoff. He's not nearly as well-known, but he does have his own long history in the state. He was Speaker of the state house and was very prominent in that role. Mm -hmm. That was more than a decade ago. And then he has unsuccessfully run for Congress twice.
0: So we wanted to go a little bit deeper than that. We wanted to ask how exactly we got to the point that we had these two particular guys, what does it say about Colorado's electorate, and more importantly, what's on voters' minds as we enter this final stretch before the primary on June 30th?
1: Let's start with Hickenlooper. If you knew him back in the day, you maybe wouldn't have guessed where he would end up in his career, that he would be the National Democratic Party's choice for this seat, which they hope will help flip the U.S. Senate.
0: Yeah, I have a feeling that he himself would tell you the same thing, right?
1: Yeah, he's definitely said that over the years. You never expected to be a politician.
0: It's kind of part of his image that he's this uh, business guy, this uh, quirky kind of raconteur wandering through life and happened to wander into a career in politics. As you probably know, Hickenlooper was a brew pub owner, and in 2003, he got his start in city politics mostly by talking about two big things keeping the name Mile High Stadium on the football stadium, and also lowering the cost of parking
2: meters. These parking meters are just one example of what I call the fundamental nonsense of government. The city raised our parking rates, and now shoppers are going elsewhere.
1: Hickenlooper businesses. built his reputation as a two term mayor and governor. You know, he helped bring the Democratic National Convention to Denver in 2008, and that definitely raised his profile and the state's profile. That was when President Barack Obama was nominated. And overall, as governor, a lot of people saw him as being, yes, kind of this oddball regular guy, but also trying to bring people together. And he was seen as pretty business friendly. He talked about cutting government spending and creating jobs. That doesn't sound a lot like a Democrat running in 2020. And as governor, he signed major legislation that pleased the left, for instance, bills to expand background checks on gun purchases and ban the sale of high capacity magazines. But then he also supported things that really made the left unhappy, especially because he opposed an outright ban on fracking. And his administration sued local communities that tried to do that. Uh, I talked to 31-year-old Catherine Newell. She's from Highlands Ranch, and she's unaffiliated and plans to vote in the Democratic primary, but she is very far to the left. That's how she describes herself. And she said she's leaning against Tickenlooper largely due to his stance on fracking and the environment.
3: I lost so much respect after he pretended to drink fracking fluid years ago, which was just horrible in general and horrible for our environment. His stance on the environment is something that people my age group and younger especially are livid
0: about. That kind of illustrates the beginning of this dynamic where he was incredibly popular, well-reviewed by voters, but you start to see these divides, especially from environmentalists and progressives over the years, and that, that does kind of come to a head starting, especially in the Senate campaign that he's in now, but at the same time, he was the governor of Colorado just through these years of incredible growth when the state was really in the spotlight as a destination for all these highly educated people to move to, the economy was roaring. Uh, So this is a guy entering this election That just a ton of people really know
1: yes and that's why national democrats really wanted him to enter this race hoping that he could attract a lot of voters like jennifer riley she lives in the northwest part of the state and craig she's a registered democrat and she says she's backing hickenlooper she considers herself more liberal than hickenlooper but does think he'll get a wide base of support i'm okay with moderate i'm okay with compromise, but even though Riley is sticking with Hickenlooper, she doesn't think he's run a great race so far, and she's especially disappointed with how he handled an ethics investigation.
0: Yeah, it's not surprising to hear a voter upset with how he handled that ethics case. This was the Independent Ethics Commission. Hickenlooper faced complaints from his time as governor that he had potentially broken the state's rules on accepting gifts as a public official, and it was supposed to be settled months ago, right? But because Mm -hmm. of the pandemic, the hearing was delayed until June. Even though Hickenlooper had agreed to show up at an earlier hearing, he apparently really didn't want to testify virtually and tried everything in the book to get out of doing it, including defying a subpoena. But in the end, they forced him to. He shows up and it, it just created a whole news cycle talking about John Hickenlooper flying on billionaire's planes and And resisting an ethics commission.
1: The voter we just heard from Jennifer Riley, her husband, was going to vote for Hickenlooper and then backtracked after all that. And now he's coming around to the idea again. But he said he was upset with the ethics violation but even more upset with how it was handled and so he's kind of leaning again towards Hickenlooper but it definitely made him take a second look at the whole situation And, and and Hickenlooper's really pushing this argument that he is the most electable person in November and the guy who will get the most done and beat Senator Gardner and I'm hearing that from other Democrats even though they're concerned with how the campaign's gone they still think he has the best chance.
0: That's funny. It it really does remind me again of how things have played out for Biden, which is he started as that middle of the road centrist candidate that a lot of people seem to get behind as the best electable shot to beat the other guy. And then voters kind of drifted away, didn't like his performance in the campaign, flirted with all these other candidates before eventually coming back. But we'll have to see if that same dynamic really does play out in Colorado as well.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned this, Andy, but Hickenlooper has a long track record in the state and by and large people like him. And so that goes a very long way, even if there's a few pretty rough weeks in a campaign. And Hickenlooper has been really pushing this argument that he is the most electable person this November and the person that will get the most done in Washington.
0: Well that would be simple enough, but there is in fact another guy in the race who is arguing he is just as electable and he has come really strongly against Hickenlooper, Andrew Romanov. Let's get to him next. So I've been reading up on Romanov's background since I arrived after he was last really politically active in the state. And he's a really interesting contrast to Hickenlooper on a lot of fronts. Just personality-wise, Hickenlooper, obviously, brew pub owner, loves his beer. Romanoff doesn't drink, not even coffee. And then career-wise, whereas Hickenlooper came to politics pretty late in life, Romanoff, he started really young.
1: And I wasn't even at the statehouse when he started. That was back in 2001. He was just in his 30s. And... It didn't take him long to become the Speaker of the House. It happened relatively quickly.
0: He was a rising star. They, In the old newspaper articles, they talk about the Eagle Scout of the House and uh, kind of this golden boy persona where he was quickly ascending. But this was uh, also at a time when Colorado politics, like we mentioned at the top of the show, were a lot more red. So I was talking with a woman named Jessica Zender. She's a progressive activist with Indivisible Denver now. But she was actually on legislative staff back then, and she explained how Romanoff was not quite the full-on progressive that he was today.
3: He was still seen as very progressive for the time. You know, like, he was seen as a pretty progressive Democrat, um, relatively speaking, I think. But I was, I mean, personally, I was really angry about the the immigration, the anti-immigration stuff. And so that really what I got a very bad taste in my mouth about
1: him. Even though that happened in 2006, this is still a major thing that hurts his progressive credentials. In some ways it haunts Romanoff with some Democrats, especially the Latino community. And as speaker, he oversaw the passage of this bill that was meant to make Colorado's immigration laws the toughest in the nation.
0: This was at a time when anti-immigration sentiment was, was really everywhere in the U.S., especially in U.S. politics. What struck me was this is the time when Democrats actually controlled, you know, again, they were just coming back to power, but they controlled both houses. But the Republican governor said, hey, you guys better pass this immigration bill or we're going to do something worse at the ballot box. And so uh, Democrats kind of rolled with it and passed the bill. Romanov since apologized for that, but clearly there's some lingering distrust.
1: Yes, I've talked to quite a few voters who don't feel like he's done enough at all in the following years to kind of make up for that. But Romanov today is still the choice for some really dedicated liberals and progressives. So mm-hmm. uh, how did we get here?
0: Well, this is actually not Romanov's first time running against the mainstream candidate of his own party. If you look back to 2010, he took on Michael Bennett in the primary for the other U.S. Senate seat. Bennett had just been appointed You know some months earlier to that seat and now was running for re-election and was was obviously had a lot of national support Just like now Romanov ran on this progressive ideology and criticized his own party and if you listen to one of the speeches he gave in 2010 Here he is talking about the Deepwater Horizon oil spill He laid out the blueprint that he's still following a decade later. It
2: is the result in part of an even bigger slick of oil money that our own party has done little or nothing to clean up. The same flood, the same flood of corporate cash washed away our hopes for a public option, drowned discussion of a single payer health plan, and watered down the reforms we need, we still need on Wall Street. And too many politicians complicit in their silence, surrendered without a fight.
1: But his push for single-payer health care and campaign finance reform back in 2010 didn't work.
0: Yeah, ultimately, he lost, obviously. He's not senator today. And then he ran again against Mike Kaufman, the Republican congressman in 2014 in the general election. Didn't win that one either. So this is Romanov's third attempt at federal office with his progressive platform. And maybe it'll end up being a test of how blue, how liberal, how revved up Colorado progressives really are right now. Uh, I heard from another activist also with Indivisible Denver, Tanya Van Pelt, who thinks that with Hickenlooper's missteps with the way that progressives have won some lower offices in Colorado, folks like Julie Gonzalez have made a big splash in the legislature. Van Pelt thinks maybe this could be the year
3: for once, reality is a little better <laughs> um, It's interesting. I feel that a lot of us not we're not resigned, because we've had some victories, like Jason Crow, you know, where we've actively actually gotten the candidate in office. And so I think we were a little more empowered uh, and
1: hopeful. Hickenlooper's campaign and others are quick to point out. you have not won a race in years. But Hickenlooper has won statewide twice. And Hickenlooper has raised quite a bit more money.
0: Right. So that's turned out to be the central argument between these guys is who's electable and who's not and what does electability mean? But there's also another factor. Both of these candidates have found themselves trying to explain why they, as two white men, are the right choice in a moment where not just liberals, but a lot of Americans are talking about racial inequity and a lack of representation, especially in power.
1: Absolutely. And this Senate race early on was very diverse. Most of the candidates in the race were women. There were people of color, members of the LGBTQ community. I talked to one voter who said millennials, especially she thinks, herself included, aren't excited to vote for either of these two men or Joe Biden. And she said of the candidates, her phrase was, they are male, pale and stale. (laughs) really wanted to hear from people who are energized about the protests and the black lives matter movement and our colleague reporter haley sanchez has been asking people out at the protests if and how this moment might reshape november and beyond
0: haley thank you for joining us
1: thanks for having me
0: so what were you hoping to learn as you went out to these protests
3: I really wanted to know if this momentum behind the protests would translate into votes, particularly for Black and African American voters. So what did you find out? Well, I talked to a lot of young voters there, and I learned that the Senate race in Colorado wasn't really what they were focused on at that moment. But that isn't to say they didn't think it wasn't important, but almost everyone I spoke to told me they can't put all of their faith in our political system. Some see community organizing as more effective. And one woman I met was Kaylou Johnson... She says she pays attention to who's on her ballot and votes, basically because of the history behind Black and African-American suffrage in America. But she's still really discouraged.
1: They don't, you know, they do what they do with that. That's why I'm like, I'm not really hopeful on politicians, because they're going to do what they want to do at the end of the day. It takes some extreme for somebody to almost get killed or somebody to get killed. The last thing that ever went in our favor was when the Civil Rights Movement, with Martin Luther King, when they signed the bill for us, to live life, I guess you want to say, and that's still ain't working. We still getting shot, so it's hard to believe politics.
0: Yeah, it's been interesting to see that there's not necessarily a distinct political presence at those movements. I know that in the times I've gone, I have not seen the campaigns, at least not the Senate primary campaigns, present, right? That's
3: true for me, too. I didn't see anybody from the Senate from Romanoff or Hickenlooper's campaign there.
1: Although the two candidates said they personally have been to protests, whether or not their campaigns are registering voters. I don't I don't know. But you talked to some political experts, Haley, and what did they say?
3: Yeah, I talked to Hari Han, and she's a political scientist at Johns Hopkins University. She studies social movements and political participation, and she says it's not all about voting. Sometimes these movements also change public opinion, especially in moderate white voters. So one example that she gave me was the Voting Rights Act during the Civil Rights Movement, where thousands marched in Selma and they were brutally beaten by police. And when people saw this on TV, it sort of triggered this wave of support from moderate white voters. Mm. Another point that she made is that progress really depends on strong leadership within the movement, but those leaders then have to act as a voice for all the supporters of the movement
1: to political leaders. We definitely saw that this year with Colorado's passage of a sweeping police reform bill that cleared the legislature overwhelmingly with only 14 no votes out of 100 lawmakers. Legislators from across the political spectrum said that never would have happened had the protests over George Floyd's killing not been happening right outside the Capitol's doors. Well, Mm -hmm. What
0: I'm hearing is that... uh... You know, this is not a movement that is explicitly about let's go and elect some people at least not right now, but it is a movement to put pressure on the candidates and the political leaders.
3: Right, I heard from Peter Groff who was a Democratic president of the mm. Colorado Senate and he says political candidates are definitely aware that voters are holding them to a higher standard this election. Mm. He says young people really need to be willing to participate in our political system though by voting and they're going to have to compromise on a candidate. They're not going to get you know, everything that they want in one person. There's no perfect candidate out there.
0: Okay, we need to do our last wait-what. I think I'll take this week's wait-what. It was the end of session, the end of the legislative session, and (laughs) for some reason or another, they took a gigantic ball of rubber bands which I presume they've been, what, putting together over the course of the session? And they drop it from a balcony in the building, and they all cheer as it bounces back up. Sadly, we don't have audio. (laughs) Have you seen this in the past?
1: Yes. So I was in the house, and someone tweeted out a picture of the rubber band ball from the Senate, and my reaction was, wait, what? They are doing that this session because that's something they do every year and it's always this big thing and we all stand around the the rotunda balcony and it's kind (laughs) of like this celebratory, hey, session's over. Um, But I was in the house and I was like, wait, this actually happened this year. I I totally missed it. So um, it did happen apparently, but the end of session was much more subdued than it normally is and the building was pretty quiet. So it is something they always do. Uh,
0: Not too subdued for a giant rubber band ball. So Haley, as somebody who doesn't cover the State House, any theories on what's going on there?
3: I really don't. I saw a lot of comments on Twitter about only in Colorado was this before or after marijuana legislation, so I'm very curious.
0: <laughs> it was before and according to Marianne Goodland, a reporter with Colorado Politics, she pointed out that they used to drop it from much higher and uh, you know, the adults in the room got a little concerned they were gonna break the light fixtures. <laughs>
1: That's true. I remember it was really high. The only kind of rubber band ball-ish thing in the house was some people threw some paper airplanes on the house floor. And then the speaker said, don't throw paper airplanes. So that that was kind of <laughs> end of that.
0: Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Andrew Kenny with my colleagues Benta Berkland and Haley Sanchez. This episode was edited by Rachel Estabrook, who's also our executive producer. It was produced by Shane Rumsey. CPR's head of audio innovations is Brad Turner, who also composed our theme music. Keep up with us on Twitter. I'm at Andy i
1: I'm at Benta Birkeland.
3: And I'm at Hey Hey Haley, H E Y Y H A Y H A Y L E Y.
1: That wraps up this season of Purplish. We'll be back in your feeds at some point again. Until then, this is Purplish from CPR News.